good investing is a lot like parenting. You want to focus on the long-term trajectory and not the daily dust-ups, right? So at any point, you and I both know, right? At any point, at any snapshot on any given day, your kid could be disappointing, right? Your kid could be rolling their eyes at you. They could be doing something dumb. They could be, you know, making bad choices, whatever, right? But by and large, their long-term trajectory is one of growth and progress and self-actualization. As professional financial advisors, we strive to build a brand that portrays mastery. The tragedy is that we can easily lose track of what true genius is, the ability to do the common uncommonly well. Finance, just like fitness, is built on simple, functional principles. You pick things up, you put them down, you get stronger, right? Functional finance is about getting back to the basics, diving into those fundamentals, and resisting the urge to chase the noise. Jess Bost is a retirement income certified professional and the vice president of brand partnerships at Alpha Architect. Due to industry regulations, Jess will not discuss any of Alpha Architect's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by Jess and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Alpha Architect or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For more information, please visit www.alphaarchitect.com. Welcome. My name is Jess with Alpha Architect, and I have here today with me Daniel Crosby. He is the Chief Behavioral Officer at Orion. And uh, we are going to Dr. Daniel Crosby. Did I say that? Did I say doctor? And I was very upset. So thank you for it up right out the gate, (laughs) right out the gate. Um, But now he has, uh, gosh, he has his own amazing podcast, Standard Deviations. He's written maybe one, two, a few books, maybe. And uh, he has Gosh, just offered so much to this this area of finance that I think everybody's starting to catch on to now, which is we can help a client and an investor with their outcomes significantly more on the behavior side uh, than we can by outperforming that next um, you know alternative investment option. Uh, inside their portfolio. So I'm really excited to have him on today. We are going to kick it off with my favorite part, which is just a battering of questions. Daniel, please tell me, what is your favorite exercise to do? My favorite exercise is walking in nature, but I couldn't look. I watch your I watch your videos. I see you. Um, I couldn't say like strolling around my neighborhood and get invited on the podcast. So I said dumbbell snatches to get in the door. But if I'm being honest, it's going on on nature walks. Perfect. So what's your least favorite? It's not dumbbell snatches, is it? <laughs> no, no, no. I, li- I like dumbbell snatches. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna say burpees. I just I. Okay. It's, yeah, it's, I can just, that. They're terrible. All right, pre workout of choice. What do you do to get hyped up for the gym? So I'm doing it right now. I'm doing it right now. So I'd be turned up for your listeners, just pounding Coke Zero, which I'm sure is disappointing to you. Uh, <laughs> but uh, that's that's my favorite pre-workout. So this is something I do. I wake up in the morning and I just pound Coke Zero until I'm so anxious that I have to go work out. So that's my. Um, there's like no turning back at that point. It's like, listen, man, 
you're going to go work out now or you're going to feel miserable the rest of the day. So that's my pre-workout. How am I doing, Jess? <laughs> Good. So that leads me to, are, do you work out in the morning or the evening? When is that tipping point? No, no. Oh, definitely the morning. I'm useless. Um, I'm, I'm generally useless after about three or four in the afternoon. Uh, so definitely I get up early. I always work out before work. So um, always in the morning. Okay. Good. All right. And then the longest or the hardest competition you've ever done? So again, this feels a little embarrassing to say, but I ran a half marathon a few years back and it was awful. (laughs) There there are people um, where I was training was totally flat. Like my neighborhood in in North Alabama at the time was totally flat. Um, the, The half marathon was in Birmingham in this very, very hilly part of the city and I was not ready. I mean, I did all right, but um, I finished. But man, it was it was no fun. And I was like, well, I did that. I'll never do that again. What got you through it? What got you to the end? You, you know what got me through the end? A uh, couple, couple of things. First of all... It was a Coke Zero. <laughs> well, it was partially being hopped up on Coke Zero. Um, <laughs> there were people all along the race path with like these, you know, cute signs about, you know, like touch here for power and like all this Aww. stuff. And it was so charming to me. And then um, at the very end, of course, my family was there. And then you kind of turn it on because you realize you're getting lapped by people who are 30 years older than you. But, you know, yeah, I try to turn it on at the end there because of my family. So that those two things got me through. My background, my undergrad degree is in psychology. I think we may have discussed this before, but it's something that I've inadvertently carried into when I was coaching uh, in CrossFit. That was a big part of just the person that I brought to coaching and it has become the person that I've brought to finance as well because understanding why people do what they do and helping them get from where they are to where they want to be has just been my passion and so uh, I followed you from the beginning uh, from the first time that that I found out you existed in the world. I appreciated what you had to bring to this space. One of the books that you wrote back in 2016 uh, which was right when I was first starting in this field crossing over from coaching uh, and personal training was the laws of wealth. How have these laws sustained themselves over that time period and what sticks out about them to you now? So we're going to do our best to run through those 10 laws. I want to hear about those top top 10 laws. I don't think that there there are probably listeners out there that haven't heard uh, about these laws that you have described in the book. And um, so, yeah, I'm going to Pop that over to you. I want to hear about those 10 laws. Let's kick off the first one and uh, and we'll go from there. We'll see how far we can get. How about that? Yeah, perfect. So hopefully you have the laws with you because I'm going to forget. (laughs) I'm going to forget some of them. (laughs) One thing I'll say is writing a book is such a pain (laughs) and it it pays so poorly and it's so difficult that when (laughs) I've written books, I wanted to make sure that they were timeless. I wanted to make sure that the things you know, that I wrote about were, would, would stick around. And what I would say is that, you know, some of the names have changed, uh, but the principles still remain uh, really the same. So that, that first law, I was really intentional about the, the ordering of the laws. Uh, and the first one is you control what matters most. And the reason why I wanted to put this first is I wanted to help the average investor take, kind of take the power back. You know, Wall Street has done a great deal historically to sort of disenfranchise everyday folks, and they've 
they've sold a narrative that, you know, kind of you're small, you're stupid, you don't, you know, you don't know how to do this, uh, turn it over to us and, and let us run with it. And there are some reasons why that makes sense that we'll talk about in the next law. But the first thing that I wanted people to know is that the best predictors of whether or not you cross the financial finish line, it's not who's the president, it's not what the Fed does, it's not, you know, it's not even what the virus does, it's not, you know, international relations, it's none of these things. It's boring, blocking, and tackling, doing doing the mundane well. And, you know, you and I talked about this concept of virtuosity, this CrossFit concept of, of virtuosity that you were kind of explaining to me. And as I understand it, it's doing sort of simple but powerful things extremely well. Yep. And so achieving financial freedom is about this sort of virtuosity. It's doing things like setting aside a little money every two weeks when you get paid, leaving it alone, <laughs> you know, maximizing the engine of your wealth, which is yourself, right? Like maximizing your own skills and your own knowledge and your own connections um, so that you can make as much money as possible. So these simple things, right? Little saving, simple investing, taking adequate risk, leaving it alone and sort of maximizing your own uh, money-making ability, these things are these things are what determines it. It's none of these externalities we look at. Uh, and that's an empowering message to know that, you know, no matter who's president, no matter what the economy's doing, no matter what's happening internationally, I am in the driver's seat and that the decisions that I make are are meaningful. And so I wanted to to sort of get that message out from the jump. Yeah. And that kind of investor actually ends up looking quite brilliant Sure. in the end. Yeah. 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 So, okay. So taking, taking it from there, you said that now wall streets sold this, this message that the investor can't do it. Um, what are, what, what's the scenario will lead into law number two. What is that? What are the ways that they can do it? What are some of the things that they need to set themselves up with in order to be able to do it? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, the, the second message is that, you know, you can't do this alone, which is, you know, the I think the original title for it was going to be you need a financial advisor, but not for the reason that you think. And so when most people um, decide to work with a professional, they do so because they think, oh, well, you know, Jess is going to have knowledge about the future path of markets or is going to have knowledge about which stocks I should choose or, you know, how I should, you know, sort of esoteric knowledge about how I should allocate my assets and things like this. And that's how I win. You know, that's how I win. I win through better information and greater foresight. And what we see is that no, right. You know, uh, financial advisors, don't have a crystal ball. They don't have better information than, than the market on average. But what they do have is discipline. What they do have is they keep you from making a handful of catastrophic decisions over the course of your lifetime that will absolutely derail um, your financial trajectory. Like, you know, you look back to March of 2020, so many people who were without counsel were with 
who are without support lost out on a once in a lifetime generation, uh, once in a lifetime opportunity rather by selling at the bottom, by getting scared out by COVID, by getting shaken out when we were down 20, 25, 30%, and then missing an enormous rally, which again, nobody could have seen that coming, right? Like no one predicted that. And in fact, in 2020, if you look at the consensus estimates from all of the big banks, every single Wall Street firm undershot the performance of the S&P in 2020. Now, if you had told those people in January, hey, I'm going to give you a crystal ball to see that there's a killer virus coming, the most deadly in U.S. history, and now do you want to revise your estimates? Do you think they would have re revised those estimates up or down? Down, of course. Down, 100%. And, yeah. and so the market is crazy, right? And so the only way to beat a crazy market is through discipline and adherence to a set of principles and rules. And the research is unequivocal that people who work with an advisor are better at doing those boring things, right? Yeah. So Wall Street has sold us a message that like we have the foresight, we have the ability to outperform, we have all this. That's not in aggregate the truth. But what is the truth is that working with a financial professional um, can help you do a lot better than average uh, by virtue of some sort of small, unglamorous things that have more to do with discipline than information. So let's talk about Brooke, who uh, her, you know, her risk aversion and, um, and, you know, maybe carry that into the next couple of, of laws that you have for, for building wealth. My first ever client, you know, she comes in and I'm like, okay, here we go. I'm nervous as can be. And she hands me six envelopes and I'm like, oh God, like, what is this? <laughs> like, this wasn't, totally. this wasn't in the book. Right. <laughs> and she tells me that she has applied to all her life ever since she was a little kid. She's wanted to be a doctor. And she's applied to six medical schools and she's received back word from these six medical schools. And she can't bring herself to open the correspondence to see whether or not she actually got in. And of course, right, you've got to, like, if you did get in, you've got to tell them you're coming, right? You've got to, right. yeah, you got to pay your money. You got to tell them you're coming and all, and all that. And so she's got like a week and a half before some of these deadlines start to lapse and she goes, you know, effectively, like, my whole world depends on this. And so if I open these letters and find out that I didn't get in, my childhood dreams crushed, like, I don't know who I am. And so I'm like, oh, my gosh, like, this is like, I was hoping for some garden variety depression or something. Like, this is not... <laughs> You know, so I hem and haw, I literally drop my papers like a, like a clown and like roll all over them with my rolly chair. And I'm just like a bumbling mess. But then finally, I kind of get to this point and I say, look, you know, it occurs to me that basically in your efforts at managing risk, right, in your efforts at managing the risk of, of sadness or disappointment, you are bringing upon yourself the inevitability of sadness and disappointment because like if you don't open these letters you definitely aren't going to medical school like right like you're worried 
you're worried that you might not get into medical school. Like, I'll tell you what, like if, if we don't open these, you're definitely not going into to medical school. And so the risk is actually, you know, the, the risk is actually lessened um, by, by opening these. And so she did and she got into all six, thank God, because like, what would I have done? If he had gotten into none of them, I didn't, I wasn't ready for that contingency plan. Um, but, you know, investors do something similar, which is they're, they're fearful of loss, right? We know, we know from the literature uh, that there are about two and a half times as fearful of loss as they are excited about a, a comparably mm-hmm. sized gain. And so they keep their money in cash or they, come in and out of the market. And what we know uh, is that, you know, if if you want to lose money for sure, the best thing you can do is, is keep your money in cash. Right. Because you're going to lose guaranteed 3% a year. Uh, now it's more like five, but, um, yeah. you know, you're going to lose guaranteed 3% a year. And so, you know, if, if you're scared about not reaching your financial goals, I think a lot of times people go, well, I'm scared of running out of money. I'm scared of not making it to retirement. So I'm just going to stay in cash. Well, if you want to make sure you're not ready for retirement, you want to make sure you're not financially prepared, staying in cash is the, the best thing you can do to, to, to screw that up because you've got to be enormously wealthy. You've got to make an enormous amount of money to sort of strong arm your way to retirement without the help of some compounding. So yeah, that's, you know, that's the the analog I was trying to draw there with the, with the story of Brooke is that sometimes the the greatest risk is is not taking any risk at all. Yeah. And sometimes like, you know, in your your rule number 3 trouble is opportunity, right? So we've seen a lot of trouble lately and there's inevitable volatility in the market. You have to you have to be able to um, to stomach that. What is you know what is your what is your philosophy on that piece of the market? That volatility piece is it helpful? Is it hurtful? How do we adapt to understanding it and taking it on as a as an investor? So my my favorite trouble is opportunity story. I there's like two types of people on an airplane. There's like the leave me alone people and the like, let's be best friends people. And I'm squarely in the leave me alone camp. <laughs> so I <laughs> sit down, I sit down on a plane one day and I like didn't get my earphones in fast enough. And so this person next to me starts chatting me up and asking me what I do. And, you know, I'm telling them and, and she's like, you went to school for eight years to tell me to buy low and sell high. <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, yeah, I guess that's a good point. But, you know, yeah. the the truth is we all know that that's sort of the first rule of investing, but but no one does it, right? I mean, we'll liken it to fitness and nutrition, right? Like the things that you need to do to get fit, to get strong are not exactly a secret, um, but they're also very hard to do in a disciplined fashion. And so, you know, buying low and selling high is one of these things so in terms of trouble being opportunity, it's just another case of everyone knows it and no one does it. The, the best way to do it is to automate, right? To just make sure you're contributing every, you know, every month, every two weeks. 
Uh, the second best way to do it is to work with a professional, right? Who will, who will help you ensure that you're doing that. So, you know, one of the things that I talk about a lot in, in the laws of wealth and the behavioral investor is how, um, how determined we are by our surroundings. A lot of times people will say, you know, they think they will be as good as their goals, but what tends to be truer is you are as bad as your environment. And so yeah. if we're not sort of surrounding ourselves, if we're not putting the right messages in our head, if we're not surrounding ourselves with the right types of people, uh, we, we tend to sort of fall off a cliff. And so I think that's where a lot of people go wrong with the buy low, sell high thing is that, you know, on days like yesterday, when the market was down as much as 3%, people are sort of wallowing around in this sort of, um, you know, fear mongering, and they're unable to do the thing that they know they ought to do. Yeah. And along those lines, you know, then the next law is if you're excited, it's, it's probably a bad idea yeah. <laughs> or it is a bad idea. Because yeah. If you're excited, it's a bad idea. Um, I think there's been a lot to be, like you said, like yesterday, people were wallowing, um, you know, in March of last year, certainly into a little bit of April, people were distraught. Um, but then, you know, I think I've seen more over the past year, actually some excitement about different areas and pockets of the market that have sprung up that are new, uh, that are shiny, that are noisy. And, you know, what, what's your thoughts on those? Yeah. So here's my thoughts. Like the, the general principle here is that emotional extremes are to be avoided when making decisions with money, right? So whether it's an extreme of, of excitement or fear, right? Greed or fear, um, both are sort of equally bad because there's, there's something called the affect heuristic, which is basically just a fancy way of saying that we view risk through whatever emotional lens um, we're at at the moment. So people who are fearful tend to see risk everywhere. Um, people who are excited tend to see no risk at all. And so emotional extremes tend to be bad places to make decisions. So with respect to like the specific stuff, like crypto stuff, DeFi stuff, meme stocks, all this, um, you know, some of that stuff will come out on top, right? Like some, I think, you know, clearly Bitcoin's had an incredible run. Um, but I think it's still worth saying that anything that is sort of flashy, sexy, emotionally um, evocative should be kept in its proper place, which is to say that it should be, you know, sort of a measured uh, smaller part of your asset allocation until such time as you can get a more sort of deeply reasoned understanding about it. I would say at this point, however many 12 years on or whatever we are into cryptocurrency, I would say there are people who have a deep, academic, well-reasoned uh, case for you know investing in something like Bitcoin. I think there are probably more people who are doing it because they've seen other people get rich or they're afraid of missing out or, you know, things like that. So it's, it's, it's less of saying you can or you can't buy any specific asset class and more of sort of a, a gut check for yourself to say, where's my level of understanding here? 
what's my reason for buying this? Do I really have sort of a deep uh, intellectual belief in what's going on here? Is this a well-reasoned case or is this simply an emotional trigger uh, that's based in, in either excitement or, or lack? The, the second thing is, though, that I know I don't want to blow up like my quote unquote real money. So with, you know, 97% of my money, I do the steady, boring, predictable thing. And then 3%, I kind of, you know, give rise to my more emotional impulses with that money. And like, that's fine because I, I save lots and I invest most of it um, very sensibly. And so I think that's not a bad, I think that's not a bad approach for people who are, um, you know, trying to, are excited about sort of new and interesting right. ways to invest their money, uh, but also uh, have a sensible streak and don't want to blow up. Yeah. No, I think that's, it helps with in that investor behavior that you talk about, mm -hmm. you know, for them to feel like they do have control over a certain portion of their portfolio and they can make decisions over that. It's just, just like kids in that sense, mm -hmm. <laughs> you give them the control where you can, <laughs> exactly. um, when you know, it's not going to blow up their life. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So, I mean, and that kind of also ties into the rule number five, which is you're not special, right? So, uh, you know, speak to that. I know in my sense, you know, when somebody walks into the gym and has these outrageous goals and they tell me here's X, Y, Z, why I'm going to be able to, um, accomplish those goals. My immediate thoughts go to, okay, but you know, you don't know if you're, you know, your life's going to blow up in a completely different area. That's going to eventually affect this certain portion that you feel like is insulated, that you have the, the highest chances of success. in. so, speak to, you know, your, your thoughts behind you're not special. I think we've seen some special players in the last couple of years too. So maybe even, you know, what would you have to say about that? So there's, there's a couple of ways in which humankind is, is overconfident, right? So we think we, uh, we think we know the future more, more than we actually do. Uh, we think we're luckier than we actually are. And, and we think we're stronger, better, faster, smarter than, than the next person. Right. Yep. So study, I quote in the laws of wealth, this is study done on 700 men found that 94% of them said that they were more athletically gifted than average. You can attest that that is not how averages work. A hundred, a hundred percent of the men surveyed said that they were uh, friendlier than average, like that kind of thing. You know, we, we think we're, we think we're better than average. And we also think we're luckier than average, right? If you, if you tell people, you know, uh, what's your likelihood of getting divorced? Like no one thinks they're going to get divorced. Well, half of us get divorced, right? Um, yeah. same, same thing with getting cancer or something. You ask people, you know, how likely are you to win the lottery? Well, now it's very likely, right? So we tend to own the optimistic and delegate the dangerous. So all I mean by that, you're not special rule is basically just the rules apply to you, right? If, if the average investor needs to diversify, you need to diversify. You know, I had someone come up to me um, after a speech I gave and he was like, hey, great speech. Love this. You know, love your thinking. He's like, I want to talk to you about something. He's like, I have two million dollars. I've got a million of it in a diversified portfolio and I've got a million of it in Apple stock. You know, and I was like, what, you know, what are you doing? What are you, doing? <laughs> you know, like, what are you, what are you doing? And he's like, well, I really, I'm high on Apple. Like, I think it's like, 
I think it's going to, you know, do really well. And it, I mean, look, Apple's done incredibly well since, you know, since he had this conversation with me. But I said, look, you can get the right result and still be an idiot. Like, you know, if you like Apple, Apple may go up, Apple may go down, but the right thing to do is still to diversify away your position from having half of your wealth in one company, right? You know, ask, ask people who invested in GE or Enron or, uh, you know, a hundred other companies, how that turned out for them. So uh, this year, not special rule is just realizing that you're susceptible to all the same rules as the next person. You're not special. And even if you've written three books on behavioral finance, you should work with an advisor and you should, you know, not try and play the game. So, yeah. Yeah. I love that. Um, forecasting is for the weatherman. So I love, I, I love this rule. And people ask me, like you said, and you mentioned it in the beginning, you know, people think they need to go find an advisor for the reason of an advisor is going to know more about you, about the future of the stock market. When the truth is none of us <laughs> know more about the next person than the future of the stock market. Uh, there's too many variables at play and it's, it, it's nothing that can be known. Uh, we didn't know COVID was coming. Um, I think there's a statistic out there that says even the best asset allocators out there, the best asset managers out there are still right. Only 50% of the time. There's, you know, there's two things. So first of all, you're absolutely right. Um, David Dreeman, famous value investor, did some research that looked at consensus analyst estimates, right? So these are Ivy League educated white shoe Wall Street firms and what they think is going to happen with a the stock. They found that one time in 170, they looked at nearly 80,000 different estimates, one time in 170 where they were within 5% of the correct answer. I mean, yeah. literally, if every Wall Street analyst in the world, you know, went and started a podcast tomorrow and quit their job, like no one would be any worse off, right? <laughs> it's just no one knows what's going to happen. It's a complex dynamic system. It has effectively infinite inputs. And not only do you have to predict the future, you have to predict the reaction of the market to the future. Right. Again, go back to COVID. Right. Like, OK, so you have a crystal ball and, you know, a killer virus is coming. It's going to kill millions of people. It's going to shut down the world. Right. And so you go, oh, so the market will go up 20 percent. Like when, it, you know, like no one, no one would get that right. But yet we have this appetite for this because of the way that we're wired. Our brains account for like two to three percent of our body weight. And yet they account for like 20 to 25% of our metabolic expenditure. So our brain is just super hungry, right? It's this very sort of energy and efficient um, part of the body. And so we're always looking for ways to think less. And so mm -hmm. if nine out of 10 dentists choose Crest, perfect, right? We'll do that. And forecasts have the same uh cognitive simplifying effect. Like if I see someone pounding the table and screaming on cable news about what's going to happen with the market, I go, okay, well, good. I'll just believe that because it's less cognitively taxing than having no idea, right? Or just sort of uh, going forward with uncertainty. So no one can forecast and yet there will always be a market for forecasts 
uh, just because of the way in which we're wired. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Next one. Excess is excess is never permanent. Yeah. Ooh, big one for this past year. Well, Ooh. big one for the past 10 years. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. You know, one, yeah, true. one of the things, you know, one of the things that we know is that humans have what's called a normalcy bias. So we expect that things will persist as they are. Okay. So I meet Jess She's, uh, she's smart. She's competent. She's funny. She's kind. Okay. The next time I'm, there you go. Next time I'm meeting Jess, I don't go, gee, I wonder if she's going to be a mean jerk idiot this time. I just assume that the kind, competent, funny person I met the first time will remain all of those things. Right. Again, going back to sort of, uh, saving some cognitive workload. So when we look around in March of 2020 and the world's going to hell, we project that forward indefinitely. We go, well, I guess this is just what life is like now. The market's going to crash every day and my kids are going to be here bugging me and like life will never be the same again. So that's the way we think about the future, but we know that at extremes, the future tends to be mean reverting, at least in markets, right? So times of great excess tend to be followed by times of, of sort of uh, want and times of, of lean times tend to be followed by better times. So we have this sort of intellectual apparatus that projects forward whatever the, whatever the current state is into the future indefinitely, where the truth about markets tends to be that they ebb and flow. So, you know, I, I say that the truest, the truest words in it are investing are this too shall pass. And, you know, in, um, in, in March of 2020, this, this too shall pass gives you the faith that there's a, that there's a brighter day coming, right? right? In December of 2020, this too shall pass says, hey, I may, <laughs> I may need to diversify a little bit because, you know, trees don't, trees don't grow to the clouds. And so whether, whether you're in a good time or a bad time, this idea that this too shall pass has sort of a, a chastening effect that I think is powerful. Yes. And it's, it's interesting too, though, backing up to that forecasting, you just don't know when. Oh yeah. Right? You don't know when. It's so yeah. Yeah. You don't, yeah, you don't know when. It's a, it's a general tendency. You don't know when at all. Yeah. So your rule number nine fits that answer to that question of there's going to be an ebb and flow to the market. Markets are cyclical. We've known that since the beginning of markets. Um, Forecasting, we can't do. Uh, We we can't be right about it all of the time, not even really most of the time. And so diversification, um, you know, is a way to manage some of that in a way that still benefits the investor at the end. But I love your, I love your rule. This is diversification means always having to say you're sorry. So tell us, tell us why diversification makes me have to say, I'm sorry. If we always posit it from an advisor standpoint, as this is the right answer for you. So full credit where credit is due. Dr. Brian Portnoy is the originator of that term, which I love as well. Right. And I love him. He's wonderful. Yeah. He's wonderful. So, um, If you look at a portfolio, right, there's always, if you're properly diversified, there's always going to be something in that portfolio that's giving you a little heartburn, right? 
Because last year when the NASDAQ and the U.S. market was on fire, you know, different parts of the world were not as on fire and certain other assets were downright crummy. Right. And so depending on which sectors and which parts of the market you're exposed to, something should always be going well and something should just about always be going poorly. And so that's sort of a weird paradoxical thing for us to think about is when you look at your portfolio and it's lagging, you know, a piece of it's lagging, that you should go, oh, good, you know, this is working, right? This is good. But yet it it, it tells you that if you truly are holding a, a varied mix of assets, that the next time that, you know, the one that's currently screaming hot is going to be colder in the future and the one you've been worried about now will probably replace it. So it's yeah. it's a strange thing. Investing is full of paradoxes. That's why it's so hard, right? That's why it's so hard for us psychologically for you to open that statement and go, ah, oh, ABC asset class has done really poorly for even five or 10 years and go, okay, that's good. Let's keep that. Paradoxically, just know that if something isn't working, it could actually be uh, to your benefit. Rule number 10, here we are arriving home on that topic of volatility. Risk is not a squiggly line. Yeah. So, so we'll go, we'll go, oh, we'll, go back to, we'll go back to Brooke, right? So uh, we have to simplify complex concepts, right? So in finance, something like risk has to be um, calculable. It has to be made, uh, has to be operationalized in a way that we can measure it. And so we've sort of settled on volatility as a proxy for risk. Well, as you're probably picking up by now, the biggest risk to your portfolio is is you, right? The biggest risk yeah. to your portfolio is you and, and your misbehavior. Volatility is very much part of the game, right? Um, we've seen that over the last 35 years, the average intra-year drawdown has been 16 plus percent. So we have a market correction and nearly a bear market every single year. And yet over that time, the returns have been fabulous, right? Over a time when you've had multiple 5% dips a year, an average 16% peak to trough drawdown, uh, you know, a correction that's as regular as your birthday, right? And yet the returns have been awesome. And so the biggest risk is not volatility. You know, if you're well diversified, you really don't have much to fear. If you're a long-term investor uh, from volatility, the biggest risk is that that volatility will elicit some poor behavior in you that will be the actual undoing of your portfolio. And, you know, we yes. know from 19 countries, it's been studied in 19 different countries. The more people mess with their portfolios, the worse they tended to do. So you're the biggest enemy, not not that volatility. You know, going back to parenting, because we were talking about this earlier, I, I really don't think there's any risk with your children of them growing up and not being amazing adults. <laughs> but of course there is. There always is, right? You know, and I, you know, starting out as a parent, uh, my first my first kid, I thought I was doing everything right, right? Uh, I thought I was, you know, sleep training and making all their food and doing all the things that I needed to do in order to create this just fantastic human being that I could predict all the way through adulthood would be 
un, you know, undeniably successful. And yet there's mornings that I wake up and I'm like, who is this person? <laughs> Where did she come from? Who trained her? There's a quote and I'm with apologies. I can't remember who said it, but they were saying effectively like a good investing is a lot like parenting. You want to focus on the long-term trajectory and not the daily dust-ups, right? So at any point, you and I both know, right? At any point, at any snapshot on any given day, your kid could be disappointing, right? Your kid could be rolling their eyes at you. They could be doing something dumb. They could be, you know, making bad choices, whatever, right? But by and large, their long-term trajectory is one of growth and progress and self-actualization, and then you wake up one day, and despite the fact that your kid rolled their eyes at you with some regularity, they've become like this lovely adult, right? And so it's yeah. kind of the same thing. Your portfolio on any given day, like that snapshot of that portfolio yesterday even, it's ugly, right? It's not great. You're disappointed. You're scared. You're worried. But if you look at it over the long term, if you're doing it right, um, it's going to grow to be that... Uh, that responsible adult, just like the kid. Behavior finance is a love I never knew I had until recently. Understanding why people do what they do with their money is the key to unlocking how to help affect change for them. Dr. Daniel Crosby is masterful at bringing these two concepts together and packages them in steps that anyone can take to become a better investor. To connect with him, find him on Twitter at Daniel Crosby. And also on LinkedIn, Daniel Crosby, PhD. Thanks for listening, friends. Now go lift heavy and be kind.